In the last, uh, in the last battle, which is the the final book in the Chronicles of Narnia, um, Lucy asks Aslan, the lion, which represents uh, Jesus, the Lion of Judah. Um, which, by the way, I had a waitress a couple weeks ago whose name was Aslan. And I just thought that was the cool, I was like, I wish I could be that cool of a parent. Um, but uh, but uh, Lucy asked Aslan to help some dwarfs. Now these dwarfs are already inside Narnia, which at this point represents heaven. They've arrived, but they think they're still back on earth in a dirty stable. They refuse to see the beauty of Narnia. So Lucy says, Aslan, could you, will you do something for these poor dwarfs? And Aslan replies, dearest Lucy, I will show you both what I can and cannot do. He came close to the dwarfs and he gave a long growl, low, but it set all the air shaking. But the dwarfs said to one another, hear that? That's the gang at the other end of the stable trying to frighten us. They do it with a machine of some kind. Don't take any notice. They won't take us in again. Then Aslan raised his head and shook his mane. Instantly, a glorious feast appeared on the dwarf's knees. Pies and tongues and pigeons and trifles and ices. And each dwarf had a goblet of good wine in his right hand. But it wasn't much use. They began eating and drinking greedily enough, but it was clear they could not taste it properly. They thought that they were eating and drinking only the sort of things one might find in a stable. One said he was trying to eat hay. Another said he got a bit of an old turnip. And the third said he had found a raw cabbage leaf. And they raised golden goblets of rich red wine to their lips and said, Ugh, fancy that. Fancy drinking dirty water out of a trough that a donkey's been at. Never thought we'd come to this. But very soon, every dwarf began suspecting that every other dwarf had found something nicer than he had. And they started grabbing and snatching and went on quarreling till in a few minutes, it was a free fight and all the good food was smeared on their faces and clothes or trodden underfoot. But when at last they sat down to nurse their black eyes and their bleeding noses, they all said, well, at any rate, there's no humbug here. We haven't let anyone take us in. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. You see, said Aslan, they will not let us help them. They have chosen cunning over belief. Their prison is only in their minds, yet they are in that prison. And so afraid of being taken in, they cannot be taken out. But come children, I have other work to do. Sometimes I often wonder how, um, how many times I'm in a prison of my own making. A prison um, because of, uh, you know, uh, placing myself in there because of failure, maybe, maybe to make atonement for sin, or maybe simply because I don't want to be taken in. I don't believe that there is something better. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like a prison? And maybe you're even a Christian, and you know that as a Christian, you're supposed to be free, but you don't feel free. You feel trapped in a prison of, of self-loathing or addiction or doubt, a prison of unfortunate circumstances, a, a bad marriage, a, a thankless job, a prison maybe of your own apathy or limitations. 
There's a team of people um, who every week uh, pray specifically uh, for the sermons and for the people who are teaching at Summit. Every week I send out an email to this team of people that I'm just so thankful for. And I, I tell them who's preaching at what campus and what text they're preaching on. And then if any of the speakers have any prayer requests that week, I share that as well. And so a couple weeks ago, um, when I was first working on the text that we're looking at today, um, in the email I included that I was feeling kind of down. And uh, nothing that I can really pinpoint. It's, it's something that sometimes happens to me on occasion, uh, a few times a year. Um, and, and it's just kind of like a weight, like a weight of, of apathy where everything I, I see, I kind of see through the lens of sadness, feels a little bit like a thick cloud where you can't see very far in front of you. Uh, in many ways, it feels like a prison. Grace frees us from the prisons that we find ourselves in, whether it's a prison of our own making, whether it's a prison of our mind, whether it's a prison of crippling doubt or addiction or apathy or sin. And I think the reason that I talk about grace so much, apart from believing that that's exactly what the Bible talks about over and over again. I, I am committed to the thought that this whole book is about grace. So apart from that, the reason I talk about grace so much is because I have such a hard time believing it. Even though I believe it's what the Bible teaches, I have a hard time accepting that it really is all about grace. And in that way, I'm very much like the people Jesus often told stories to, to the people that Jesus told the story we're gonna look at today to. We're gonna look at a story found in Matthew 22. If you don't have a Bible, uh, it's printed on the back of your bulletin, uh, but we're gonna be in Matthew 22 and I'm gonna start reading in the first verse. Jesus spoke to them again in parables. Now, in order for us to know who the them is, we actually have to go back until about midway into the previous chapter into 21, chapter 21. And we discovered that the them are the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. He's speaking to the religious insiders. Uh, and essentially, these religious insiders have come to Jesus and they, they, they ask him a question. They say, by whose authority are you doing the things that you're doing? Essentially, they're, they're looking at Jesus and they're saying, hey, look, we've worked really hard to get where we are. We've gotten the proper training. We've earned the right to speak. Uh, we, we have proof uh, that what we say is authoritative. Where does your proof come from? Where do you get the authority to do all the things that you've been doing? And so then Jesus tells them some stories. And one of those stories is the story of the wedding banquet. So verse two, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guest, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? 
the man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. This is God's word. And it's a story all about grace. I know it doesn't sound like it, but it is. It really is a story about grace. Jesus responds to these religious insiders with with this story. Uh, He responds to the question, by what authority are you doing these things? By showing them that the kingdom of God is all about grace. And here's how you get it. You respond to the invitation. You allow yourself to be clothed and you celebrate. The kingdom of of God is all about grace. And the way you get it is you respond to the invitation, you allow yourself to be clothed, and you celebrate. The story Jesus tells starts off with an invitation. In fact, it's implied. The invitation has actually already gone out. Jesus says there's a king and he's throwing this huge banquet, a huge wedding celebration for his son. And and the servants are to go out and remind those who have already been invited that it's time to get ready. The time is now, like come, the party is ready to take place. And you know who those those first people uh, that the servants go to, those who have already been invited, who that represents? Well, it represents the people that Jesus is talking to directly, to the religious insiders. Many of us are religious insiders. We've been invited, but there's a question, have we shown up? Many of us can sit in church for a long time and serve and do a lot of good works, uh, but have we really come to the party? Are we like the older brother in the prodigal son story, working really hard to be really good, but we never celebrate? This story shows us that the kingdom of God is a party, that God, above all else, wills to celebrate. Did you hear that? The, the God of the universe, the, the, the creator of all things, the, the one who has the power to judge the good and the bad, that God wills above all else, above all his other will is to celebrate. God above, above all else wills to celebrate. So have you come to the party? Are you still in the field toiling away? See, those who have already been invited in the story don't come. And Jesus tells us they don't come for, 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 a, for a couple reasons. In verse five, he says, they decided to go back to what they were doing. One goes back to the field. One goes back to their businesses. They know about the party. They know what's offered in the party. But to them, it's, not, it's nothing, nothing that special. They'd rather go back and continue to do what they've been doing. And then in verse six, it takes a kind of violent turn. Uh, the rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. Okay, Jesus, why, why escalate things so quickly? Um, I think the point here is underneath the indifference of those in verse five shows there's a hostility. Think about that for a second. Are, underneath your indifference, the things that you're indifferent about, is there some hostility there? Is there some judgment of others? Is there, well, (laughs) they don't deserve this anyways. What Jesus is saying here is pretty unsettling. He's saying that a person can on the outside say, I'm coming to the party. I believe this stuff. I'm all in. I maybe even made a public declaration of my faith, but on the inside, there's no feasting, only toiling. 
Instead of celebration, there's a constant working, a constant striving and earning. Why? Because if I've earned it, nobody can speak into my life. No one can tell me what to do. But the invitation is grace. It's like the line from the old hymn, if you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. Religious insiders often want to get better on their own to get good enough to deserve the party. But if you come into the feast, if you accept the invitation, you're admitting that you didn't do enough to earn it. That you don't deserve an invitation more than anyone else deserves an invitation. So my fellow religious insiders, have you come to the feast? Have you accepted the invitation? Jesus says there are people who say, I'm coming, who never show up. And then, of course, there's a, there's a second group that are invited and they do show up. And I want to make a little side point here. The kingdom of God is built by invitation. You don't come without first being invited. And if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you, you know this. You know, you know that there's no way that you would have figured this out on your own. There's no way that you would have come to this had you not been wooed to it. It's like the other old hymn that we sing here a lot that says, "'Tis not that I did choose thee, O Lord, that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee, hast thou not chosen me." See, we have a God who invites us, who seeks us in our shame and in our sin. He makes the first move. He's a God who wants us even when we're unwantable. I don't wanna ever think that I found God. I don't ever want to think that it was me who found God because how could I ever be sure that he wanted to be found by me? Do you see how insecure that would make me? It's like if you show up at a party that you haven't been invited to, the whole time you're going to be nervous. You're not going to enjoy that party at all because you're going to be worried the whole time you're going to be found out. But if you have an invitation, that says you're wanted. That says you are right where you're supposed to be. So in this story, you have those who are invited who don't show up. You have those who are invited who do show up, but nobody shows up without first being invited. There is great comfort in this. Invitation shows us that we're wanted. But there's also a warning here. What I love about our church um, is that uh, it does feel to me, and, and from what I hear from other people, like a very safe place to come if you're just kind of trying to figure this Christianity thing out. Maybe you've been burned by the church, maybe you never even grew up in the church, but like this is a pretty safe place to just come and sit in the back. And I'm not saying this about any of you necessarily, but if it is you, great. I'm glad you're here and y'all are so dark back there. Um, I can't, all right. Um, so, um, this is a great place to like wrestle with questions and feel like you, you, you're, you, can, you can take your, your time. Um, but, but here's what I want to say if that happens to be you. I hope this is a place where you can take as long as you need, but that it doesn't take any longer than is necessary. And my guess is if you're here, you're feeling some sort of tug, some kind of spiritual tug. I want you to know that's the invitation. That's him. That's not yesterday's Chipotle. That's, that's him. That's God inviting you. And listen, we have a God who is very patient, who doesn't force us to come without understanding or without counting the cost, but also don't tarry. What are you waiting for? When someone says, I have a meal ready, which is the image here, you don't respond by saying, I'll come next month. No, you have to come right then. The meal's ready right now. You come to the banquet when the banquet is being thrown. 
St. Augustine in his book, Confessions, talks about uh, that, that idea of a spiritual tug or an invitation and, and how often he would say to God, yes, I wanna follow you, I wanna surrender to you, I want to be made pure, but let me have a little fun with this pretty girl first. And he didn't say it exactly like that, but that's essentially what he's saying. Like there's this tug, and, but he's like, I'm not, I'm not ready yet. I wanna go do this first. But here's the problem with waiting. It's not so much that the banquet won't be there when you show up, because the kingdom of God is an eternal feast, but it's what the waiting to respond does to our hearts. To say, I'm not coming until I'm ready to come is essentially acting as if there is no real God and there has been no real invitation. But listen, if there is a real God and you're feeling the tug, the invitation, you have to come when he calls. If there is a God who created the whole universe and and thought you up and, and sees you and knows you down to your deepest, darkest secrets, and he says, I want you, I want to celebrate with you, you don't respond, maybe later. No, you come. See, there's, there's great comfort in the invitation, but there's also great warning. Don't wait. In order to get grace, in order to be part of the kingdom of God, you have to respond to the invitation. And then second, you have to get dressed. Jesus says the first people invited don't come. So what does the king do? Do, do, do does, does, did. What did the king, what does the king do? Do, yes. Whew, y'all, I just had a baby. I mean, I didn't, my wife did. I, I've used that now, I think, every week since the baby's been born. Um, um, what does the king do? He goes to the servants and he says, all right, let's change the game plan. Let's go out and let's just invite everybody. Go to the street corners and invite every person you see. Now, what's interesting, commentators say that, that the word uh, that Jesus uses in this story in the original Greek for street corners was actually a very specific place in every city. It's the place where the one main road would come into the city and then all the roads would diverge from that one point. So it was essentially the place that everyone had to go through. And if you stood there, you saw every type of person, every uh, ethnic group, every socioeconomic class. You saw, you know, just everyone had to go through this one place. And so Jesus says that the king goes to the servants, let's go there. Let's go where everyone is. And instead of just bringing their religious insiders into the party, which is how the story started, let's invite everyone so, so at this party, we have to picture this party and it is, it is, there's just crazy amounts of diversity at this party, but it's not just uh, diversity when it comes to culture or ethnicity or, 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 or wealth. Like it, it's not just diversity there. It's also, it's also diverse morally. In fact, Jesus makes it a point to say in verse 10, both the bad and the good are here at this party. Think about that for a second. At first, it looks like the kingdom of God is built by the religious insiders, but by those who are morally good. In order to be invited, you had to be a person of a certain religious standing, but now everyone's invited, both good and bad, both religious and irreligious. Jesus told parables to disrupt people, to disrupt the status quo, to to change people's minds about things. This is disruptive. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God, everyone is invited. 
The king doesn't care if the guest smells like the pigs or like smoke or brings a date. Who does? He doesn't make any stipulations at all. The guests do not have to get their acts together in order to be worthy of the party any more than the the prodigal son had to guarantee he would never run away again before they killed the fatted calf. No, there's no stipulations. You just have to respond to the invitation. He doesn't invite the good and snub the bad. He invites all while we were still sinners. He simply asks that we trust the invitation. So what comes with the invitation? New clothes. There's a, there's a twist in the story. In verse 11, it says this, but when the king came in to see the guest, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. There are two good reasons why someone would show up and wouldn't have wedding clothes. One is they didn't have time to go home and get them. And the second is they don't own any wedding clothes. But Jesus says this man was speechless. He didn't offer either of those excuses, which would have been very valid excuses. He didn't offer those excuses because the invitation came with new clothes. So he had no excuse. Everyone at this party is right off the streets. No one had time to go home and get changed. And in fact, most of them probably were poor and didn't even have wedding clothes to begin with. Therefore, the king must have provided the wedding garments at his own expense. They came with the invitation. So this man couldn't respond to the king that that he didn't have clothes because he couldn't go home or he couldn't afford them because they were right there at the door. He just chose not to take them. My, uh, my three-year-old daughter right now, Prin, is, uh, is going through the phase where she just wears princess dresses, princess dresses everywhere, um, church, anywhere. And a lot of times we'll have multiple costume changes throughout the day. Um, but don't ever call her by anything other than her name. I don't care what she's wearing. If she's dressed like Ariel and you say, oh, you look so beautiful, Ariel, or hello, Queen Elsa, she, like a demon will take over her and she will go, I'm Prin, just like that. And so, of course, um, uh, I, as a dad, ignoring Proverbs 22, 6, fathers do not exasperate your children, do it every time, uh, just because I like to see that, like, take over her. Like, like it's, it's, it's amazing. You should do it if y'all see her. Um, So why wouldn't this man put on the wedding clothes? They were right there. Why wouldn't you? Why would you, what would be some reasons why you wouldn't put them on? I wondered if this man didn't put on these wedding clothes because he thought it would change who he was. And he'd be right, it would. See, Jesus is saying in this parable to these religious insiders, I'll take anybody, your record, your past, all of it. I want you, but I will change you. You won't stay the same. It's like Anne Lamont says, grace meets you where you are, but it won't leave you where it found you. And that change starts with these new clothes. But here's the good news. The clothes don't cost us anything. They were paid for by someone else's expense. Like the invitation, the clothes are also completely by grace. You don't have to do anything to earn them. You just have to be willing to put them on. 
We come into the feast not by being properly clothed, but by admitting that we're not clothed and allowing the king to dress us. I spent some time trying to really put myself in this man's shoes and wonder why would he just not put the clothes on? Everyone else did it. Why, why did he refuse to put the clothes on? But then I thought, what if the man in this story isn't meant to represent us? like any of us. What if when Jesus told the story, he wasn't saying that we're this man? As Jesus is telling the story, he's the son of the king. So, so obviously the, the party, the wedding banquet is for him, for his feast with his bride. But in order to get his bride there, which is us, Jesus knows he has to become this man, the man thrown out. See, I don't think Jesus was looking at these religious insiders or anyone else who was reading the story and saying, hey, don't be this guy. Because Jesus knew he would be this guy. It was him that would show up before a holy God in filthy rags, but not because he didn't take the beautiful garments left at the doorway, but because he left them there for us. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, to become sin. Why? So that you and I might become the righteousness, the beauty of God. See, Jesus knew he would be the one who would show up at the, at the party in filthy rags, that he would be the one who wouldn't have the red, royal wedding garments because he left them there for us. And then in verse 13, he ends the story by saying, the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw, them, throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. As Jesus said that, I imagine he, he, he knew exactly what he was talking about, that he would be the one thrown out, that he would be the one who had his hands and feet nailed to a cross, that, that he would go out into the darkness where he would experience the full weight of the evil and brokenness in this world. Jesus hung on the cross in our filthy rags, in our sin, so that we could be clothed in his beauty, his righteousness. That's the point of the story. Jesus is looking at these religious insiders and he's saying, don't miss this, guys. This is the whole point. This is the whole point of, 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 this, of the whole Bible. I'm gonna be the man that is thrown out of the party so that you can be a part of the party forever. He's looking at these religious insiders and he's saying, you ask me why I have the authority to do what I do, why, why I can hang out with who I hang out with, why I can choose to heal the people I choose to heal, why I can elevate people who are known sinners to, to great prominence, why I can do all that? Because of this, because of what I'm gonna do for them. There's a pastor who died a few years ago um, that really, uh, he's, he's written some things that have been so helpful to me. His name is uh, Robert Capon, and, and he said this, we like the guest may cease to care about our acceptance, but God has never had a change of heart about having offered us acceptance in the first place. Accordingly, while this parable certainly says that God, like the king, will tell those who refuse to trust him to go to hell, hell nevertheless remains radically unnecessary. There will never be any reasons from God's point of view for anyone to end up there, precisely because God and Jesus has made his grace and not our track record the sole basis of salvation. 
The invitation is grace. The clothes are grace. So all that's left is to party. Charles Spurgeon, uh, who's my all-time favorite uh, preacher, um, had an incredible sermon on this parable and he ended by saying this, you always want beggars at your feast. The prim and proper ladies sit there like this and then comes the food and they say, hmm, but the beggars cheer for every dish. The beggars cheer for every dish. Are you cheering for every dish? Jesus is telling us in this parable that the kingdom of God is not kept from us because of our sin. Jesus took care of that part. He's saying we're kept from the kingdom of God. We miss the kingdom of God because of our pride. That's what keeps us out our damnable good works. Most of us aren't amazed with every good thing in our life. Most of us don't cheer for every dish because most of us feel like we deserve it or maybe even that we deserve better. I know uh, that, that when I'm struggling, most of my energy is spent like, God, wh- why, why is this happening to me? Why is this not getting better? Or I look at people who I think I'm better than and they're doing better than me. And I'm like, God, what is this? Are you teaching me something? Do I need to, do I need to be corrected in some way? Do I, what do I need to do? I will work harder. Tell me what to do and I will do more and I will do more and I will do more and I will do more. But the problem with that is it never leads to a party. There's never any celebration. But in Christ, we're already at the feast. Are we cheering for every dish? I'll finish with this. It's a a true story that came out of... um, uh, the end of World War II. Um, and there was, a, there was a Highland Scot by the name of Murdo McDonnell. Um, again, other cool parents. Um, so Murdo um, is captured by the Germans along with another Scot and they get placed in this prisoner of war camp that has this fence that divides the camp into two halves. And on one side um, is the, are, are the British captives and on the other side are the American captives. And Murdo and his friend get separated and they get put on, on either side of the fence. Um, and they both serve as chaplains uh, to, to the men on the side that they're on. And because of that, they're allowed to come to the fence once a day for a few moments and just kind of talk. Uh, but they have to do so in the presence of the guards. Now, the guards spoke French, they spoke English, of course, they spoke German, but they didn't speak Gaelic, which is the native tongue of Scotland. And so these, these two Scots would speak Gaelic every time they would come to the gate and, um, or the fence, and the guards had no idea what they were saying. Well, Murdo was on the American side. And on the American side, one of the American soldiers had managed to get a shortwave radio that was getting information and reports from America. And so they would hear this information about what's going on in the war. And then Murdo would go to the fence and he would tell his buddy and then his buddy would go back and, and tell the guys on the other side. Um, and, uh, and one day he got to go to the fence and say, Germany surrendered, the war is over. Now, the communication at this point had broken down, and so the German soldiers were not aware of this. Um, and of course, Murdo spoke in Gaelic, so they didn't, they didn't hear it there. But when, when the, other, the other man made it back to the barracks and told the guys, a huge cheer went up. It confused all the guards. They didn't know why these guys started cheering. And then Murdo said, for the next three days, the guards had no idea the war was over. He said, we were still prisoners in a sense, 
but we walked around and acted like we were at a party. We didn't complain about the food anymore. We didn't hate the guards anymore. We smiled at them. Truth is, we actually felt sorry for them. Yes, they were pointing guns at us. Yes, we were still in prison, but we were free. And on the fourth day after getting the news, um, they woke up. Uh, on, on the fourth day after get, yeah, getting the news, they woke up and they found the guards were gone and the doors were all open. But in recounting this event, Murdo McDonald said, we were liberated by the news before we were liberated by the guards. The gospel means good news. In Christ, we are free whatever circumstances you find yourself in today, whether uh, your record is one that is, is more good or more bad than others, wherever you find yourself today, the truth is no matter what, we've been invited to the party. Unlike the dwarfs in Narnia who couldn't see the truth, so they lived like prisoners in, in the middle of paradise these soldiers who, in fact, were prisoners in an actual prison saw truth and it made them live as free men. The cloud uh, still hasn't lifted for me. It's going on two weeks now. Um, but I will tell you, uh, the truth helps. Hearing the news helps. Um, and it hasn't hurt that Shark Week was this past week. But uh, in Christ, I'm free. I really am free. And I can know that it's all about grace. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you uh, for the truth and for news uh, that is so good that we have been invited into a party that we didn't earn, that there's nothing we can do to make ourselves wanted at the party other than the fact that you, you've said you want us. So Father, I don't know where every person in this room is with, with you and knowing how you view them, uh, but you do. And so Father, I would ask that you would continue to pursue each of our hearts today and this week, that you would continue to woo us and show us of your amazing grace and mercy and love for each of us. So Father, I pray that that, that love would so penetrate our hearts uh, that we really do become like beggars at a feast who cheer for every dish and who, ha who can't help but tell other people about the party. And we pray all of this in, in the one uh, who became uh, one of us for the sake of saving us. In Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.